1: Welcome to Let It Roll, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the first episode of the funk season of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring George Clinton, the mastermind of the Parliament Funkadelic Empire. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll.
2: I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and it's time for another episode of We Dig, Tales from the Tour Bus, with co-host Justin Bankston. Justin, welcome back.
3: Thank you. I am so happy to be back talking about this amazing show.
2: It is it is a fun one, and this is the funk season, starting with George Clinton. Episode 1, Season 2. And I'm afraid this is going to be the last season of Tales from the Tour Bus, or at least for the time being. But all we can do is uh, celebrate its greatness and and hope for more. But I don't even remember how we, how we structured these at the beginning, but what are your general thoughts on this George Clinton episode as a season opener for the Funk series?
3: Well, I mean, it's outstanding. There's obviously... They're obviously just hitting some high points of the George Clinton story. I mean, the the amount of things that happened that they were able to just fit into this 30 minutes is already kind of mind-melting, and you know it's just the tip of the iceberg.
2: You absolutely do. I mean, this is a guy who had a career from the mid-60s all the way uh, basically to the present day, but it was at peak productivity from say 70 71 all the way to 79 and just an incredible run um as parliament as funkadelic as the producer for bootsy's rubber band uh producing solo albums by eddie hazel bernie Worrell, producing the brides of funkenstein parlay i mean the sheer number of songwriting credits alone that george clinton has is just phenomenal and the bands he put together the man's accomplishments are amazing but being Tales with the Tour Bus, his story is off-the-chain crazy as well.
3: <laughs> That's the good stuff.
2: <laughs> it is, it is. And one, one thing I liked about Mike Judge's intro to this show and to this series is that he points out, you know, there are not a lot of documentaries about funk. And this, and this series, and just like his series on country, which the Ken Burns Country PBS series, I think, helped rectify to some extent, but there's been no Ken Burns series on funk. And so the the Let It Roll, I mean, Tales from the Tour Bus fills an aching need for documentation of this incredibly important and beautiful musical period. You know, funk was the dominant African-American pop and rock medium throughout the seventies and had a huge influence on hip hop as we know. And as, as we discussed, but, what are your thoughts on sort of the structure of the episode and the way they told his story?
3: I really loved the sort of cold open with the Bootsy telling the story of the, uh, the show in Fort Worth or Evansville where they're tripping and George comes in and starts dancing on a table and takes his toga off. And then they just play until the lights come up and there's literally no one else in the place. It's just sort of this sort of, you know, magical realist story that, you know, some aspects of it were true, but also it's just kind of like, like many of the stories in this episode is just, it takes on this sort of psychedelic and sort of supernatural element to it. Like the lights come up on an empty room.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and the, the touch that, it's not just that he's nude. He's wearing giant chicken feet on his feet <laughs> and walking on people's tables. So not only do you have to deal with the butt and dong of George Clinton on your table, but chicken feet as well and up in your plates yeah. and uh, just totally crazy. But, you know, I, I was I was. Comparing the structure of this to some of the structures in the first season, and this is much more chronological than, say, the Waylon Jennings episodes or the Johnny Paycheck last season. I mean, other than this intro, it's pretty much straight chronological all the way through. I mean, telling the story of George Clinton from his birth in an outhouse in the South uh, all the way, you know, to his his current status as an elder statesman of of hip hop and American music. So, uh, why do you think that went with that straight? straight chronological narrative
3: i think part of it might be that there's enough just shenanigans at each point that you don't need to get fancy with the structure because if you just tell the story like from you know chronologically from ridiculous thing to ridiculous thing you you've got like the whole story in order and it never got boring
2: it absolutely does not get boring um and, and it managed us to convey both the immense productivity of George Clinton and also the high level of insanity that that he functioned at. I mean, and it's not just the LSD period, which basically runs throughout the 70s, uh, but it's even before then, like the move from, you know, he had a do-what band in New Jersey, he's working in a barbershop, and he funds they want to go to motown they want to go to detroit and try out for motown and he funds this by acquiring an immense volume of counterfeit money i mean that is a classic rock and roll story right there
3: it really is and it's like i just want to i want to hear more because you're like yeah i acquired 1.2 million dollars in counterfeit 20s i bought them from some kids (laughs) Just like, this is okay, George
2: <laughs> yeah, They were probably just going to door-to-door Selling Grit subscriptions And, you know <laughs> Being real generous With the change on the comeback I, Yeah, it's uh, it's Crazy um, And it, it's, it's got a good lineup of interviewees And unlike a lot of the country episodes Fortunately, George Clinton is still with us So he's interviewed And you got Bootsy Collins Who's interviewed and also going to star in his own episode That we'll get to uh, probably two episodes from now. And then, you know, a- another drummer with Frankie Cashwaddy, Billy Bass Nelson, another bassist, Tom Vickers, the Minister of Information, who basically did PR for the P-Funk Empire, Ben Greenman, the uh, ghostwriter of Clinton's Autobiography, and then uh, Satori Shakur and Amorka, both members of The Bride of Funkenstein, just, you know, in-depth band members here, who all have pretty similar perspectives i mean one thing i felt like do you feel like any of these people oh and i forgot ronald stozo the clown who's
3: uh it's unclear what instrument he
2: plays (laughs) it is very unclear although at one point his job was to spew snow out of his nose on stage but uh yeah it's the thing that that struck me about this though do you really feel like any of these people knew george clinton
3: and it's hard to say I mean they this it seems like they all spent significant time with him on the road and were probably like these were the people that he was running through the studio as he was generating this incredible amount of work in the seventies
2: yeah and 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 I mean obviously they they knew him as a as a colleague and a mentor and a and a genius you know, songwriter, producer, frontman, singer. But it's, it, it sort of makes you wonder. I mean, the, the only sort of personal story they tell on him that anybody else tells on him, he tells several on himself, is is this tale of when they call him Prez and that he's the president of the No Mouth Club because cause, uh, he <laughs> he can't get laid on the road, which is just a sad state of affairs for a rock star in the 70s. Indeed. And so let's get down to the, to the business. Um, What was your favorite part of the episode?
3: Oh man, that is, uh, the whole thing is just chock full, but I think my favorite is probably when he's talking about just bumbling into the studio and like demanding that he sing on whatever track they're working on and throwing the cans on. And when they're, rewinding the track for him he thinks they're playing the track for him and he basically writes atomic dog to the sounds of a rewinding tape which then becomes atomic dog the song like it's just too good of a story however true it may or may not be
2: yeah it's it's totally classic and it reminds me of john lennon's claims uh, about the backwards tracking on rain which has largely been debunked but you know lennon claimed that he popped in the reel to reel Ah, uh, backwards, and got fascinated with the sound. But Clinton wasn't on acid at this point. By this point, the acid had stopped working, and he'd switched to crack. So he was in a sad state. And yeah, Atomic Dog, uh, you know, is is the capstone of his career. His last number one hit on the R&B charts. And yeah, I, you know, I probably have to say that probably was my favorite part of the episode. Although I'm going to come back and also say that was the saddest part. Uh, of the episode as well What was your favorite song on
3: the episode? For me it's Atomic Dog And it's because Like Atomic Dog is sort of The My entry point into The p Funk Nation because of Doggy Style Which I wore out When it came out uh, And so like Those, that that song and then That whole hook is just like something that was just imprinted on my brain like as a very young adult and so then you know hearing the story about how he wrote it and and watching it uh in the documentary was uh i got a real kick out of it
2: yeah it's it's hard to argue with that and you know i noticed one thing that and i think this might be true of the whole funk season that i think this format. Doesn't serve funk music as well as it serves country, just because funk tends to be up tempo. And I really think that the short form documentaries, where you really don't have time to do a whole song, um, and because of the emphasis on the dialogue and the humor, they don't do a lot of like you know a lot of documentaries. You'll have the whole song blaring in the background Mm -hmm. while people talk and other things go on. But here they're just playing short snippets of the songs and. It's hard to really, you know, Funkadelic in particular was a a band that was at its best stretching out, you know, five, six, seven minutes, and they were just getting warmed up. So it's really hard to get the power of the funk across in, you know, 30, 45 seconds. But having said that, you know, Give Up the Funk and Flashlight, Uh, even I want to testify the first hit by the parliaments, you know, before they became P-Funk, those are all all solid tunes, and and opening up would take your dead ass home. And the dirty limerick uh, that Clinton recites, I think, conveys a good bit of the power of the music. Now, what was the funniest part of the episode to you?
3: This is the hardest question to answer because I mean everything from at the beginning when Mike Judge asks you not to switch the channel to PBS to the the shot of george's butt when the lights come up on the empty room to i mean it just goes (laughs) on and on yeah Uh, but you know i thought about it and i think it is that that the lights coming up on george and just the way that 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 whole thing was handled with the animation and everything just i i laugh every single time
2: (laughs) yeah i think for me it has to be when they drive onto the set of Night of the Living Dead frying their brains out on acid <laughs> with no idea <laughs> what's happening to them.
3: <laughs> so my question about that is that how do you know what a zombie is before Night of the Living Dead came out?
2: Oh, they had zombie. I mean, you know, I walked with a zombie at Night of the Zombie. There were tons of zombie movies uh, before Night of the Living Dead. They just didn't show them eating actual cow entrails on screen <laughs> up, up to that point. <laughs> and and, it, and it's classic You know, you got George Clinton and George Romero Two deeply eccentric American auteurs Colliding like that And it's it's typical of Romero That of course he didn't have a closed set I'm sure he didn't even have permission to shoot On the locations right. he was using You know, I mean, that was a totally underground Gorilla piece of cinema That went on to make gazillions of dollars And, and you know, for the P-Font crew To run into it and And, you know as African Americans in the dark night, seeing a bunch of crazy white people, that's got a whole serious set of scary implications that it's hard for us with our white privilege to sympathize with. I mean, especially frying on acid. Oh my god! I mean, so it's yeah. it's funny, but it's also when you think through it, it, it it's got a certain heaviness to it, and and but like you say, there's so many funny parts of this i i got i got to talk about the way they got introduced to lsd in boston some of the you know they're playing to college students primarily they're touring around to the to the the ballroom circuit of the late 60s playing with bands like the mc5 and and, and Boy dukes featuring ted nugent and bob Seeger. and a bunch of kids from dr timothy leary's harvard department of Acidology come up and insist that they come back to the lab and get turned on and and they pay them. they pay them sixty five dollars each to drop acid in laboratory circumstances. And like Bootsy Collins says, you know, they basically didn't come down for a decade. I mean, it's uh, it's staggering, and I'm sure there were some acid casualties in the P funk entourage, but I'm sure the, the main you know, survivors of this. You know, there's no Rocky Anderson, Rocky Erickson, or Skip Spence here. No Sid Barrett's. I mean, George Clinton and Bootsy and the other principals—they hung for years on a mega diet of LSD. So it's it's, you know, one thing that really came across to me is this is a high functioning drug abuser here. I mean, the, the the sheer volume of productivity that George Clinton put out in the 70s. I mean, the guy was the ultimate workaholic. You know, like they said in the show, basically he was either touring or recording. And he was taking all the money that he made and putting it back into the product the whole time. And it's just amazing to me that somebody could do that on acid.
3: Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, just, just the amount of touring, like especially not just touring, but mounting a gigantic stage show with the motherfucking UFO that comes down from the ceiling and everybody in costume and 20 people on stage. Like the logistics of that are just staggering. And then yeah. on top of that, you're putting out two records a, a year with all of these different bands. It's just it's unbelievable. Like no you you can't find anybody with that kind of work ethic now like putting like getting that kind of work done. It's just completely insane and then while that's all happening you know is there's just drug-fueled madness at every turn it's it's just hard to fathom how it all worked
2: yeah i mean the, the only bands that i could think of that would be comparable you know would be the grateful dead but the dead never put out that kind of recording schedule i mean they were never you know they they did studio albums but i can only think of a couple years where they did more than one album a year and The butthole surfers are the other one, and I mean, I hate to say this about my beloved butthole surfers, but P-Funk really makes them look like lightweights. I mean, because, well, I mean, they probably had, the buttholes had extreme financial duress, but P-Funk was running on pretty low resources for years in the early 70s. I mean, their records did not sell. They were playing in clubs but with like a 15 piece band. So, you know, that things were pretty tight and you know, the butthole servers have a pretty amazing six, seven year run, but P funk did it for 10 or 12 and, and with a much higher level of productivity and broke through to the mainstream in a way that the buttholes never did. And so it's, you know, it's just a, a staggering thing. I mean, it's definitely George Clinton is one of those artists. The more you learn about him, the more impressive he gets. For sure. And what was the saddest part of the episode? Well,
3: I mean, th- this is a repeating theme that I probably won't finish saying until the last one of these we do, but it's when they get into cocaine and everything goes to shit. And like just the, the one, the little like two line clip where it's like, an LSD just stopped working. And it's like, well, uh, dude, anybody knows that LSD isn't a workable option as a lifelong drug of choice, right? That's just not going to work. And so, <laughs> yeah. so he's, he says, oh, so I started doing crack. And I'm like, whoa, wow. That's like a kind of a logical leap there towards. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's they're very different drugs, but I guess the crack kept him going, but, but it burned him out, too. I mean, and there's a real... Yeah palpable drop-off in the quality of the of the work he was doing but at the same time i don't know that any human being could have sustained i mean you know a decade of high-level productivity with one band is one thing but to do it with for a pop
3: artist for a pop musician a decade is a really good run
2: An incredible, yeah, I mean, that's basically three really good runs back to back to back. But to do it with two bands at the same time, plus multiple side projects, and, you know, sure, Brods of Funkenstein and and Parlay probably weren't, you know, they both have at least one good album, but Bootsy's Rubber Band is a pretty serious project. I mean, you know, there's plenty of people that if all they had ever done is produce the first three or four Bootsy's Rubber Band albums that's a lifetime achievement award i mean to think that he's doing that and parliament and funkadelic and then all this other shit is is it's just mind blowing but yeah i have to agree and the, and the, and we'll be going back to this throughout the funk season that this narrative arc for african american performers tends to be really brutal i mean the the, the rise is hard fought and then, you know, just add drugs and total recipe for disaster. And and Clinton, at least, is somebody who came out, as far as we know, came out the other side pretty well off. I mean, you know, he's he's still touring. He's active. He's been at South by Southwest many times. Um, you know, he's he's had a good run as an elder statesman. And so it's not you know there's going to be some episodes later this season that won't have that redemptive arc you know when we get to rick james or james brown it's going to be much much heavier but with with clinton you know his empire collapses around him as you said it all goes to shit but clinton himself isn't destroyed by it and, and comes back so you know that's redemptive now last question do we like the main character
3: A hundred percent. I mean, what, what an incredible American character, you know, just like he's larger than life and incredibly entertaining.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and just so giving. And I mean, you know, the thing about these, the, the people that we tend to admire, the public figures tend to be workaholics. It's almost a given that anybody that, that succeeds, Enough to become famous, much less a legend like George Clinton is going to be a workaholic. So I'm sure, uh, you know, his family life suffered. And it's telling to me that you don't hear any mention of any family other than his yeah. mother in this story. So, you know, George Clinton's family was the P Funk posse and his life was his works. So, you know, there, I'm sure there's a cost for that. And I would not want to be his kid, but. Yeah, as a fan, as a as a admirer, there's nothing not to like. I mean, I'm sure the blue noses are gonna disapprove of his lifestyle and everything, but you know, there's there's not a big trail of rip-offs. There's not a whole bunch of people that he was violent against, you know, there's not a lot of arrests, uh, which is also amazing. Um The only rest I can think of is something that happened in the early 2000s, I think, on an airplane or something, just something nonsensical. Um, So, yeah, I definitely like George Clinton 100%. So, recommended listening. And this, you know, I've been hearing about P-Funk since the early 80s. And my introduction was actually Atomic Dog on the radio. And then... I knew some kids who had some cassettes that had Give Up the Funk and one or two other P-Funk songs on it. But for years and years, in the 80s when I was looking, you could not find any of their records in print, not their uh, Westbound stuff. And you couldn't find the later major label stuff either. And so, But in the 90s, all that uh, Westbound record stuff um, poured out. And and I remember buying them up, you know, one by one. And it was pretty overwhelming at the time. And, you know, in the streaming era, I've been able to go back and listen uh, more. But, um, you know, so, like, it's pretty easy at this point in time. I mean, the, the albums are on Spotify. I noticed Google Play was pretty spotty, but nobody uses Google Play. YouTube has all this shit. Um, yeah, and so I I highly recommend with Parliament Mothership Connection is just an easy entree to the whole thing. It's a concept album. It's a unified album. It's got hits. It's got funk. Totally solid. Totally solid. And what 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 are your recs on the Parliament side?
3: Well, I think that I mean you you've got like the Stone classics on your list here, including the really good compilation give up the funk. Uh, and I think that I would just add to that, the the first uh, parliament record proper Osmium. Uh, I think listening to Osmium and Free Your Ass sort of side by side, uh, sort of as the minister of information first heard them is something that everybody should do. It's, they're just incredibly interesting records.
2: Yeah, very true. and And, and, and solid stuff. And, and, you know, insofar as there's Parliament and Funkadelic plus the other bands, it's really more of a chronological break. Like I think I think there's like a pre 1970 to 1973 or 74 would be one period. And most there's only one Parliament album. And well, I guess there's a couple. Osmium comes out in '70, but then there's a multi-year gap before there's another Parliament record. And so you've got this long run of Funkadelic albums in the early 70s. And that stuff is the rockinest, heaviest, funkiest of their oeuvre. And I think it holds up with anything of the period, whether it's Black Sabbath or you know, David Bowie's run, um, Grand Funk Railroad. I wouldn't put it up against Stevie Wonder. Uh, but anybody on the rock band side i would definitely say funkadelic can throw down with any of those and then after 74 75 then you get what's the classic commercial period cuz i mean those early 70s albums to my understanding didn't sell for shit and but once you know you get to 75 76 especially by 78, 79, by the time you you got Mothership Connection and One Nation Under a Groove, they're going platinum, they're selling out arenas. Um, and that stuff is a whole different era that's shinier, more synth influence, although it's still a heavy funk band. Uh, but I think if you like it a little bit more polished and the concepts are clear i mean there's multiple concept albums mothership connection funk and teleki versus the placebo syndrome one nation under a groove uh uncle jam Wants you i mean clinton is not just a brilliant musician but a real social critic i mean i think up until p-funk you don't really have not p-funk public enemy until public enemy you don't really have anybody in African-American music that you can compare to Clinton insofar as making sustained social statements. I mean, in a wide range of commentary, I mean, all the way from very dark, cynical stuff to really funny and uplifting. I mean, the guy has a really comprehensive vision. and, And watching this episode and going back to the records, it's really just hitting me upside the head. This guy is a major, major league artist.
3: Oh, for sure. I will say though, as far as like social commentary, you know, you got Curtis Mayfield, you got later Marvin Gaye, I and mean, there's definitely some stuff. It yeah. doesn't hit as hard as as funkadelic does, and it's not as edgy. But there's definitely, you know, some truth telling going on out there. Oh,
2: for uh, sure, and and James Brown had it too. But but to me, like with Mayfield, you know, you got the Superfly soundtrack, and two or three impressions records but but even those impressions records like it was more of a singles artist that uh, that he did the social commentary with the exception of the superfly record and then marvin gay you know you've got what's going on but then he pretty much walked away from social commentary after that although that album that they just released that that would have been a follow-up to what's going on has some social commentary on it but you know he segues into let's get it on and more sexual stuff so i'm not saying clinton's the only african-american artist to make social commentary i mean stevie wonder was making commentary it's just that it's basically he's writing novels with these concept albums and 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 and, you know it's i can't think of anybody uh that's doing that level of concept work with the social commentary i mean you know um i mean somebody like um Phil Oaks, maybe, but he's nowhere near Clinton's equal musically. And, you know, I I don't know. I'm just – Clinton is one of these artists that the more you dive in, I think think it gets better and better. And I I also want to give a shout-out, you know, Bootsy's Rubber Band, the first three albums, maybe even the first four albums, you cannot go wrong with. And then Eddie Hazel, if you're a guitar head, and I know you are, Eddie Hazel – I mean, obviously, Maggot Brain is the classic – you know, funk guitar workout, but his solo album, Game Dames and Guitar Things, which I can remember seeing at a record convention for you know ninety five dollars back when you never saw records over fifty bucks, uh, and and now you can get it on streaming easy, and it's it's well worth a listen. It, the songs aren't as great, but the the guitar playing is just fucking mind blowing, and and it's also I think it's telling. There's no mention of Bernie Worrell or Eddie Hazel in this in this episode, and I'd be very curious. Um, I mean, I, I assume it because you know Hazel's dead and, and Worrell's dead too, so they didn't have him to talk to. But Clinton had a lot more conflict with Eddie Hazel than any of the other players. He ran off to Motown for a while, and so I would I would definitely like to know more about the relationship between Clinton and and. His wayward lead guitarist
3: for sure and i'm glad you brought up eddie hazel too because maggot brain is just and you know every like music nerd knows about maggot brain but i don't think necessarily that every like guitar music loving person knows about maggot brain and they need to because it's like one of the cornerstone electric guitar performances like of the 70s and that's saying a lot because the seventies was like a guitar hero decade, but Maggot Brain is like in a league of its own.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, Clinton famously told Eddie to play, you know, like your mother like you just found out your mother died. And he, he must have been in a highly impressionable state, frying on acid and, and he's a very sensitive person. And it just that that solo will break your heart. And yeah, it's it's one of the things like, you know, when I was a kid the racism in the early seventies and the, all through the seventies is just staggering to look back on. I mean, you know, my people were not especially racist people, but you know, FM radio came up and was pretty integrated for a few years in the late sixties. But by seventy, it 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 became an apartheid state, and people like Eddie Hazel should have been celebrated by every you know butt hair rocker in the world and they just did not get their due at the time. Yep. 100%. So you know, we can, we can rectify that a little bit, but, uh, you know, uh, what are your general, any, any closing thoughts on the, on this episode or, or thoughts as we go into the season?
3: Well, it was an incredible delight to watch over and over again as I did, uh, Again, the the animation just really adds to the stories because you're getting these incredible anecdotes, and you get to actually watch them with this really like uh, beautiful and uh, you know witty animation that like really makes makes the things every funny story's funnier because it's got this like really pointed animation to bring you along through the story, and so that continues to be just. The thing about this ep- this show that really sets it apart, and also I'm just super stoked again that this season there's all the interconnections between the episodes. So you got James Brown, you got uh, George Clinton, and then you've got Bootsy who ties all that together. And there's it's it's really fun to sort of like you know get the different little bits of these of these things in the different episodes.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward uh, to the booty Episode in particular, because he's such he's you know the literal bridge between George Clinton and James Brown, because he played with both of those guys. And you know, according to some documentary I saw somewhere, you know, he brought the one uh, from James Brown to Clinton, which is the emphasis on the one beat. Which I, you know, if you listen to Funkadelic, you can tell that they were hearing that and picking up on it uh, from James Brown and Sly Stone. But I don't think they had it as a conscious ideology. And Bootsy brought that. And so that would be fun to talk about. And one other thing I got to talk about is that story towards the end when Clinton does a whole tour sober. And he does it because he's got a lucky crack rock that he cooks up this big ass crack rock and he just doesn't touch it for the whole tour until the very end. You know, he uses it as a marble, he, he, he has it in his pocket like a ball bearing, you know, as, as a fidget toy. And, and, makes it all the way through the tour and decides he's going to smoke. It gets into a fine hotel room in the Renaissance hotel in Los Angeles, starts smoking out, puts Kleenex in his nose to protect him from the smell of the burning crack, lights that on fire, sneezes, lights the curtains on fire. And he's sitting in the lotus position naked and he's too tight, twisted up to get free and he falls. And the way they draw that, you know, when we interviewed Jeff Furtzig last season, and he pointed out that that judge was really into raymond pettibone i really saw pettibone i could see pettibone's influence in the way they drew clinton's hairy ass legs uh in that scene and, and you know i was just uh this episode is full of shit like that it's it's many many riches musically comedically uh, and artistically so it's been a treat watching it and a treat talking about it with you justin
3: Absolutely. I can't wait to uh, talk about the next episode.
2: All right. We'll be back uh, in a week with episode two, which I believe is going to be the two-part Rick James.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast. Come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2 featuring Rick James. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Hi,
4: I'm Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is my podcast featuring honest conversations with folk musicians.
0: A crisis is actually kind of exhilarating. You know what to do. I unplugged from the internet. I walked every day, even if it was five below.
4: Uh, one day I walked. Hope you had a good pair of gloves. I did. Great. Thank you. <laughs> can you talk about Bob Dylan? I can. Uh, how you met him and your favorite memory of him? Well, you're not going to get that one. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast fosters the folk music community and showcases a genre that is often misunderstood. Ironically, basic folk features complex conversations about the human experience witnessed from an artistic angle. Whatever I was telling myself in terms of like, oh, it's like important for me to like just keep my personal life and my career separate. No matter how you kind of justify it, there's something that's not good for you. The psychological buildup over time, even of just like having to check myself in conversation that's just like not healthy how do you approach both of these like very straight worlds as a musician and as a human being who doesn't fit those stereotypes
0: i'm on a rainbow colored (laughs) unicorn flying at them and they they don't know what to do with me but i'm there like a little bee (laughs)
4: our definition of folk is extremely broad so you'll hear interviews from katie tunstall livingston taylor amanda shires and many more on basic folk available wherever you get your podcasts or at cindyhouse.net basic folk is part of the pantheon podcast group thanks for listening okay bye